2: The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, our communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom DiOro.
1: Thank you, Charlotte, for our guest today. Let's welcome Todd Jersey. Todd Jersey Architecture is one of the nation's leading sustainable design firms, and uh, his staff has been leaders in the field of earth-friendly design since 1989. The mission of the firm is to create projects that optimally support human needs while protecting and enhancing the Earth's ecological systems. The firm has won multiple awards and over a quarter of a century of practice, they've completed over 300, 300 exemplary projects. For more information, feel free to visit www.todjerseyarchitecture.com. That's www.todjerseyarchitecture.com. Hello, Todd. It's an honor to have you here on the Modern Architect Show. Thank
3: you, Tom. It's great to be here.
1: Oh, we had a great time even before we got on the show. <laughs> Let's start it. Well, we talked about this. You got to, in life and a lot of things you do, you got to roll that dice. And you can't just wait for it to kind of go the way you want it. You got to kind of blow on those dice.
3: You really do, Tom. One of the things I... I'm constantly preaching to whoever <laughs> will listen, is take initiative. Take initiative. Take initiative. Okay. Don't just wait for the your boss or your teacher and break the rules. I'm big on taking initiative, breaking the rules, trying to follow the intent of the law without being constrained so mightily by the letter of the law. And in architecture practice, the architects out there know really how important that is. Yeah, the code is massive, regulations are huge, we have to find ways to create safe buildings and be creative in meeting the code so we don't break our budget and we don't spoil the earth with using overwrought, you know, construction systems to meet code. But that's one of the things that I work hard on is doing my research and, you know, if you're passionate about something then you take initiative and you, you do your research and that informs your practice.
1: I love it. What was your inspiration for that mindset, that way of being, so to speak? If you can go back as far as you can recall, mm-hmm. what, what, what may have, either what may not have been as you know, singularly galvanizing, but what inspired that sort of um, mantra?
3: Hmm, that's a good question. That what comes to mind is when I was a kid, I was thinking, maybe I was seventh grade, I started to pick up trash. Off of the streets. I didn't like it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so there was a natural tendency for me to protect the earth. I don't know where that came from. I love it. it. I was born with it. But it's a very simple act of initiative. I'm not waiting for, I didn't call somebody and I didn't wait for a neighbor to do it. And I didn't think it was right or wrong. I just, to do it, I just did it. So I started doing simple acts of earth care as a very young person. Right around the same time I was... This is seventh grade around? Yeah. Okay. Right around the same time I was active politically, I would go down to the Bobby I, Kennedy... In the seventh grade? Yeah. So I'd go down Whoa. to the Bobby Kennedy headquarters, get a whole bunch of posters and then bumper stickers, and I would stick them over the top of the McCarthy bumper stickers. <laughs> so, so you see, I didn't really ask for permission. <laughs> so I am a little bit out. My, yeah. my wife says you definitely call her outside the, the lines, outside the box.
1: Oh, that's okay. so that that simple act of initiative that you say I, that that could be an actual show itself.
3: it'd be initiative. a crucial show. As I got later on in my life, I started when I started reading in college. I started reading Buckminster Fuller, the Bucky. great, yeah. the great Bucky Fuller. He he speaks about human initiative as the greatest force for positive change. So it gave me words to put to something I was I was prone to do it. But, in taking initiative for you young people, your professionals, anybody that will serve you so well in your life and in your career, one of our signature projects is the restoration of the Richmond Plunge, oh, which is a historic swimming pool, Point Richmond, California, right up the road, let's well, say financially, socially, fiscally, and socially challenged city. I found that they had this wonderful swimming pool that I hadn't even known about that was closed. Uh, it needed a whole bunch of repairs. It had hollow clay tile walls which are ah. not, <laughs> which are <laughs> yeah. not known to be strong, especially in any kind of lateral yeah. earthquake event. They're incredibly weak. And I found that this thing was closed and I called the city. So I took initiative. And I said, "What is going on with this swimming pool?" And they said, "Well, we hired an architecture firm to do a study on how you know what would be required to reopen the pool." And that study is on. This is I was talking to assistant city mm-hmm. manager. I said, "The study is on my desk. Would you like to come see it? Because we can't afford it." So the pool was closed for five years. The study was sitting. I think the study was a couple of years old by the time I went and looked at it. Went and met with the assistant city manager, a guy named Rich McCoy. I sat down with him for 15 minutes, asked him if I could take the study, went home, looked at it started thinking and Rich let me into the building and I called my structural engineer and we looked at it and I saw that they were doing a lot of things structurally that was costing, adding a whole lot of weight to the building. Those of you who are in design know what shotcrete is. They were <clears throat> adding concrete oh. to the building. So when you add oh. concrete to the building, you add oh. what's called a seismic load you add more weight up in the air, which the building then has to support, the foundations have to support. So that meant doubling the size of the existing foundations. And that's one of probably five examples. That was the most dramatic example of a kind of a, a silly idea. Okay. <laughs> that was costing the city could not afford to do that. Okay. So so why are we proposing that? So that's a you know sort of an, another example of of something we might get to later on, which is sort of how we tend to compartmentalize projects and throw five, ten consultants on it. Each consultant then sort of throws their bit of the recipe. And all of a sudden, the recipe is so laden and so laden with this expense, you can't possibly afford it. So anyway, I pulled these out, and I looked at what What was the point here? The point was to reopen this pool. And, sure. the, and the point, that's the point. And then here's the money. So is there any way to take the financial constraint and take the real purpose and work with that. So that's what I did. And I came up with a little, I did this all pro bono, of course, you're not going to pay me for this. I came up with a little report, which I gave to the city manager and I gave to the nonprofit who had been formed years, years before to keep the city from eliminating the building. Called Save the Plunge Trust oh, okay. So I talked to both of them And I had this little report Said the the Richmond Plunge Opening it with the money you have Or something like that <laughs> It was like two pages And like two pages
1: It was small Okay so you by design Wanted to have it that succinct
3: Yeah was, okay. I didn't want to spend A lot of time on it okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't getting paid I mean I just got to the bottom line Which was yeah. you know Don't do this This, this is a bad idea it, it, This is basically What I'm telling yeah. you right now here's a way we can get all the seismic upgrades we need. We basically need, I recommended, pulling out the old hollow clay tile wall, which had been stuccoed over on the outside and painted 15 times on the (laughs) inside. It it had, its character was gone. So pull that out, rebuild it with wood frame, you know, high-performance wood frame construction. We can insulate it then, you know. We're not going to, with ShotCrete, we were not going to have an insulated wall. So a lot of reasons. And so right off the bat, I showed them how to save one and a half million one so in one, 1. 1.5 million. So that's a lot of money. Oh, this geez. was in 2005. The other architect plan, if they're listening here, they're gonna hate me saying that, I won't say their name. But the other architects plan okay. had them, I think it was somewhere around ten million dollars to do the project. And the city had one point seven million. There's a little okay. bit of a difference. So uh, a little. So I came in and I showed them how to reopen the pool at one point seven million dollars. Really? I didn't recommend it necessarily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it meant bringing in trailers for bathrooms, which they could have done. Okay. But what it, what that got them, what happened was it took the project from being shelved, like literally, and spiritually, emotionally, practically, no one was, everyone was dead in the water, to people got excited. And people got excited about what I was talking about, and people got excited about Here's the guy taking initiative who's a problem solver. Wow, maybe we could do something with this. So that was the seed, the seed that got planted by me. And this isn't a story about me personally. This is a story about human initiative. Sure. By somebody with a pretty comprehensive skill set. But the skill set could sit home, right? It had to be deployed. Yes. So you have to have the initiative to deploy it. So... Somebody with a skill set went and bothered to do this, brought hope to it, Got and then you get this virtuous cycle where the Save the Plunge Trust got excited. The city, I mean, cities don't get excited, but, you know, the city, <laughs> yeah, okay, if you can do it, you know, great. Yeah. I mean, people got, the community got excited. Okay, there you. is. And there, it's the community that's sourced. So what happened is the Save the Plunge Trust wanted to talk to me, of course, and I met with them, and then we met again, and we looked at... They then started to deploy some of the funds that they had raised. And I suggested to them, well, the city's never going to hire me. I've never done a swimming pool. So if you hire me, listen up, uh-huh. architects. Yeah, yeah. No, no, there's initiative again. <laughs> yeah. If you hire me, we can show the city how to do it. And then the city might take over my contract. And that's exactly what happened and thank you to bill Lindsay, the city manager of the city of richmond at the time i appreciate bill more and more every year as i realized that took some courage and took some real leadership on bill's part to take this guy who'd never done a swimming pool took some trust and take on that contract then i after i worked i did the schematic design being paid by the the save the plunge trust and then they ran out of money, and the city of Richmond took over the rest. And now, during this time, I was also working with the trust to raise money, and we got a significant grant from the state of California Preservation Fund. I don't remember the exact title. The grant is no longer active. But we got a $2.5 million grant, and that, was, that just changed Ugh. everything. Now, everybody got excited, and we can really open this pool. We still didn't have enough money to do the full, but we, we had enough money to do the first phase of the project, which was to open the pool and put the bathrooms in. And so that was basically to reopen the pool. We ended up, the city ended up voting to fund most of the rest of the project and allowed us to really do... A, it's an award-winning project. It's a signature project for me. It's a, it's a legacy project. It's we call it the healthiest and greenest public swimming pool in the world. And be happy. Todd, to be, are you kidding? No, I'd be happy That's to be awesome. second, but no one stepped up <laughs> to challenge us. So I keep putting Whoa, it out there. Whoa, I love that line. Yeah. So, so come, please challenge us. So it's got 3,600 square feet of solar thermal, 32 kilowatts of solar electric on the roof. It is a saltwater pool which means it has salt rather than chemical chlorine. There's a little box the size of a shoe box that creates chlorine from the salt using a little bit of electricity, so you don't have to store chlorine anywhere. So you basically—the saline matches—the the amount of salt in the water matches the salinity of your eye, so you can open your eyes underwater. Oh. It's really lovely, and they don't sting. Oh. It's actually the saline difference, not the chlorine. Oh, really? Uh, that, okay. You know, so you can open your eyes underwater. There is chlorine. You have to have it by law. It's got a UV filter, this big Siemens thing size of a desk. And that UV filter, that filters out the residual chlorine and the chlor... Sorry, the chloramine gases. The chlorine stays, the chloramine gases. The chloramine gases are the thing when the chlorine attacks a ammonia molecule or a dirt particle or whatever, the, you know, the stuff that the chlorine kills. Yeah. It attacks that and it creates the chloramine gas. That's the poisonous stuff. That's the stuff you smell. When, you're th- okay. when you smell chlorine, that's actually chloramine gas. So that's the stuff that's really pollutes the indoor pools and makes them really unhealthy air quality. So we have a Siemens, you know, a sixty thousand dollar UV filter. So you walk into the the plunge and it doesn't smell bad. It smells great, and it is gorgeous. It's got over one hundred and fifty windows. Oh, you know, gosh. it's a stunning historic space. <laughs> In the '60s they had pulled off the uh, one of these beautiful mo- clear story monitors that popped up in the middle of the roof you know, the windows were shot in the '60s so the pool opened in originally 1920s by the '60s those windows were shot so that city at that time just pulled the whole gizmo off and plywooded it over so it took away some 60 plus operable windows and took really really hurt the building we rebuilt that thing wow. so that was you know that was one I, I that was where this extra money was really important to really do it right. So we rebuilt this monitor. It's got so many wonderful features. You have, you have, it's, a, it's really a, for architects and for preservationists and for swimmers, it's a project worth, worth seeing. But it started with? Initiative. Initiative.
1: Yes. Awesome. Let's get back to that when we return. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford.
2: Just Yell Fire is a nonprofit organization that has grown to reach 1.5 million girls and young women across more than 60 countries. Founded by a 14-year-old girl in 2006, Just Yell Fire today offers a variety of programs that empowers teens and college women with danger awareness, avoidance information, a dating bill of rights, and even self-defense techniques. To learn more or donate,
1: visit justyellfire.com. We're talking today with Todd Jersey. Todd Jersey Architecture is one of the nation's leading sustainable design firms. For more information, you can uh, feel free to visit www.toddjerseyarchitecture.com. That's www.toddjerseyarchitecture.com. Todd, what is it about a pool for whatever reason and how it seems to bring together a community? This is my own experience and obviously yeah. my own opinion. But w- I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are and why is it that a, a pool in particular really brings a community together in a town?
3: Yeah, that's such a good question, Tom. It's one of the reasons I really wanted to do this project was as I learned about the Richmond Plunge through this. I actually learned it through a documentary movie huh. called The Plunge Time-Lapse Through History, which was done by Sari Ar- Arrington, I believe. You can Google that. Plunge, Time Lapse Through History. That was on PBS. My wife and I were watching it one night, and that's how I, I grew up in Berkeley. I'd never heard of the plunge, which was literally five miles from my house. But, boy, I became interested after watching the, the documentary. And one of the things the documentary talks about was that the plunge in the tumultuous time of uh, racial integration during the World War, um, World War II, when the Kaiser shipyards were there and a lot of African-Americans were coming up to work in those yards and there was a lot of racial tension. The plunge was the safe zone. It was where people of all races were actually interacting with each other because they just they weren't interacting. So they swam together, and there's these wonderful old historic photos of the white kids and the black kids and the, you know, and the Hispanic kids, and, but mostly white and black at that time swimming together and it was uh, it was really a cultural safe zone there's something about beaches and swimming together where we're vulnerable and we're half naked and <laughs> <Very> <laughs> you know true. it's sort of you know the costumes come off and if you think about uh-huh. it you know your status costumes are off you're not in your car your house uh-huh. you're not playing yeah. tennis you know there's no there's it's, it's, it's all equal playing field you actually
1: we're can all, be a, in fury if they see you know you got a little punch going or something
3: yeah exactly Right, if you're like you think you're so cool, yeah. you know you you bring your paunchy butt in here and swim with the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean it's, yeah. it's it's like a great uh, you know yeah like uh, like it's, it's a playing field. Hey, they're all swimming in the same pool, literally. Yes, yeah. So that's a that's a neat thing about that. But we don't do a lot of pools. But you speak to something that's been a, a core purpose of of mine, which is to do projects that are you know benefit the human community and benefit strengthen the community while also strengthening the, you know, the earth protecting the earth so we're currently working on projects in the realm in the collaborative living realm both the co-housing projects. I don't know if you've heard of co-housing no. yet. Yes, I have. Co-housing. But share and, with us, please. And co-living. So co-housing, currently working with uh, the co-housing company on finding sites and uh, putting together communities for senior co-housing, because I'm interested in- <laughs> <laughs> I'm 60 now, and it's such a powerful way to live. So the collaborative living idea comes from, it's a very ancient idea, <laughs> which is when we share well. <laughs>
1: convention has been yes, forever. It's, it's, it's,
3: yes, yeah. it's called sharing well, and when we yeah. share well, we first of all, we survive. And the folks that didn't share well, we don't know. We don't know. They're, we don't they're know. gone. <laughs> sharing well means you have, in sort of modern parlance, you have access to the amenities and the things that you need at significantly lower costs and and when we share well we also strange you have strange benefits. Tom if you and I are sharing a lawnmower, you and I are actually gonna interact. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And more than let's say I'm waving to you across the fence and you've got your lawnmower and I got mine. So we're just gonna it's just real simple (laughs) simple idea, right? Yeah. Like we're sharing a lawnmower and you and I are gonna talk. And if we talk, I'm gonna find out about you and, and we're gonna build what we now call social capital. And especially if it's my lawnmower and you're borrowing it, you know, you're going to, I'm building up a little bit of social capital with you. So when I need a little bit of something, you're going to think, you know, that dude was cool. He let me borrow (laughs) his lawnmower for 20 years. I'm going to bring up some (laughs) sandwiches now. You know, really simple, simple stuff, but social, the building of social capital is very hard to do when we're isolated. In, In conventional living systems, we're very isolated. So we don't tend to to be taking care of each other. We're isolated, so we, and it's a very expensive way to live. So co-living, the difference between co-living, co-living is really really like the old communal living. It's, it's basically it's communal living. There's a new movement, especially driven by millennial generation, which cares less about having their own stuff and cares more about access to a bunch of different stuff, the creative, personally the creative class, so imagine if you live together in a big house and you live with six people and you're all helping each other, you know, shop and uh, or maybe more than six people. A lot, of, a lot of these co-living communal households have 10. They rent this big house and they live sure. together. So now you're shopping for more than yourself and you're cooking for more than yourself and it's we all know that. You know, if I cook for myself every week versus if I cook for six people once a week, I'm going to save a lot of time and money. Yes. So our office is now doing large co-living projects where we're doing a hundred of these bedroom suites, so a hundred people live so then, and the co-living people have a bedroom and then they have their own bedroom or they share it with a significant other, and then they share the common spaces, right so in the brand new facilities, we had to look at well what's the right size? we're not going to have a hundred bedrooms in this massive kitchen. That's not a governable (laughs) size. So one of the earliest things we, those those of us in the co-living movement have done is try to establish what is a manageable, what we call a pod size. And that's about eight to 15 bedrooms. So in the new projects, we basically create these maybe one or two pods a floor, depending how big and they're eight to 15 bedrooms each. And Each bedroom has a bathroom. That's the nice thing about doing the brand new stuff versus buying an old house, which has, you know, maybe a big house has six bedrooms and two bathrooms. Then you're sharing a bathroom. So the new stuff, everybody has a bedroom. Everybody has a bathroom. And then we live collaboratively in cooking meals. And we live, we watch movies together. We have now we've saved resources so much that. In let's say a ground level, a commercial level of one of these larger projects, we are now planning things like a rec room, collaborative office space, music studio. No way! Music studio, radios, all these really cool amenity stuff that we can now do because we're creating this collective. The other key thing we're doing is we're eliminating or radically reducing ground level off-street parking or on-site parking that is a is super important companion to reclaiming our yes you know doing this doing this model so we do this collaborative and then we reclaim the street space and now we have got this dynamic very powerful collaborative living model so the co-living model as we have it now is a rental model it's a very low barriers of entry in the co-living model Right now, and uh, the, the developer that I'm working with is Open Door. That's uh, opendoor.io. And I co founded Open Door and then left it to just do my architecture because I'm not a developer. But okay. I collaborate with them on these projects. Now, um, oh, here's another thing I help on the projects I'm working with Open Door, I find the land. Another example. Yeah, of initiative. A nation, yeah. <laughs> Very important. I'm finding the land, which is you know, and the land comes with me. So this is a, a part for you, architecture. You want to move into another, you know, another field, another use type. The key thing is to take initiative and, and try to put projects together. And I did that with a plunge. I've done that with these. these Literally, co-living. you plunged. I mean, I the, plunged. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I took the plunge. <laughs> yeah. So, and co living is is happening. So co-living is a really, really on point because it delivers a much higher standard of living or quality of life per consumer dollar than conventional living styles.
1: Is this a discovery of yours?
3: I've been thinking about collaborative living for 30 years since I got, since the late 80s. And I got out of college. I got out of architecture school and I moved from Washington, Seattle to Boston, Massachusetts. (laughs) (laughs) And... And I'm out of grad school, and I'm looking for a place to live, and I'm thinking, boy, I'm going to be really lonely. <laughs> and I'm thinking, boy, I wish they had such a thing, as and I just invented the term. What I really want is a professional dormitory. A professional dormitory. That's what I yeah. want. I know there isn't one, because yeah. I just made up the term myself, sure. but I, could, I want my own bedroom and bath, but I want to eat with people. First of all, I can't cook worth the, you know. You can't. It has to blank me out there. Um, I can't cook, and I am too lonely, and I'm working in a firm with, you know, 70% of the people are too old and they're married. You know, this is not a fun firm. This is an architecture firm in Cambridge, Mass. The schools, you know, super boring people. (laughs) <laughs> love them to death. They, they were great. But uh, not a, you know, not a, you know, not a bar person. So I concocted this thing and thought about it and planned for it for, for years. And then when, the, when Bush tried to ruin the world and the economy went in the skids in 2007 and uh, architects were dying on the vine, I just decided to take that downtime and create this, this thing. And I called it collaborative housing. And so on our website, you'll find a bunch of stuff on collaborative housing, co living. And you can always email me, Todd at ToddJerseyArchitecture.com for more information. I can get you hooked up into this really expanding, wonderful world of co living, collaborative living. The other model is co housing. Co housing has been around and sort of around and as a real estate model for much longer than co living as a real estate model co-living's been around much longer than co-housing just as an informal practice. Co-housing was created by the Danes in the early... Danes is in Danish. Danish. Danish people. In the early okay. 80s and brought over to, in the late eighties, early 90s, brought to this country by an architect duo, Charles Durrett and Katie McCammond, who still run a company called the Co-Housing Company in out of Nevada City. When Charles Durrett was in Scandinavia, I guess Copenhagen, In architecture school he was walking by these sort of housing pods of housing development and one of them in particular always had people congregating and talking to each other and so he walked in and said what is going on why do you guys are why are you the only ones that are always outside well we have this this kind of community and we all got together and thought why don't we share more and it was a very very just organic thing and they ended up buying one of the houses that was for sale in this compound, and they turned that into a community house. So they all got together and did this, and it's a very dynamic, wonderful way of sharing. So the co-housing model, it's really a condominium ownership model, if you think about it, in the U.S. And so people can own their own unit, and they have a kitchen, and they can be fully independent, but they also, like a condo model, they own part of a community house, and then they can eat together. So it's a very dynamic and wonderful model.
1: Excellent. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Did you know that a study found an average of three pieces of
2: trash along every foot of Bay Area streams leading into the Bay? The trash you drop in the street can end up in the San Francisco Bay or the ocean where it can kill wildlife, such as seals, seabirds, and turtles. Join with more than 50,000 Save the Bay supporters advocates and volunteers to protect our bay and make it cleaner and healthier for people and wildlife. Please visit SaveSFBay.org.
1: We're talking today with Todd Jersey. Todd Jersey Architecture is one of the nation's leading sustainable design firms. For more information, you can visit www.ToddJerseyArchitecture.com. That's www.toddjerseyarchitecture. Dot .com Todd the loneliness most people at least from the research i've done and discovered that's kind of what they suffer you know whether it's physical yeah. ailments emotional ailments is yeah. that loneliness this is addressing it at a very tangible tactical level what's your thoughts yeah. on that maybe you disagree or
3: no that, okay that's uh, that's i think the source that's the problem that needed to be solved right was people realizing i think you know tangentially loneliness and stress, which is we're stressing out trying to get our needs met in this society that says you got to own everything, Tom. You can't have any of my stuff. You know, good luck. (laughs) In fact, I'm going to put a fence up. So, you know, an alarm system and all that stuff keep you from even touching any of my stuff. You can go get your own stuff. And so, you know, then we're isolated, you know, and then we're, of source we're over-consuming resources. There's resources. And then that, which leads to uh, what we just heard about, which is litter every, three pieces of litter every, every foot along our streams. By the way, tangentially, I still clean up beaches. I still am picking up trash. There's actually an uh, app called Litterati, which I now use and you can take a picture of your trash <laughs> and Oh no. And really? yeah, so they want to get to the, they want to put pressure on the companies that are making the stuff. But anyway, that's that's a real tangent. But for those of you who are, you know I look I, I really do look for things that I can do that make a difference that are easy to do too. The plunge is not one of those things. So I do a lot of native plant restoration and things like that. I am, I am a real, I'm the real deal. I'm a real ecologist. I really yeah. care deeply about... Yeah, share with us how you, you got know.
1: into being that. Obviously, it sounds like it, it yeah. happened before you even credentialed as an architect.
3: Oh, it did. Yeah. So, and, and I love the, the conversation about loneliness. So I, I do want to sort of earmark and say that was, that was a brilliant sort of piece of observation and, and a really important point. And what our conventional way of, our conventional real estate system Manufactures loneliness. Oh. It's manufacturing loneliness. That's its net result. So we really when we talk about collaborative living and co-housing, these things are these things are not just nice things to do for some liberal arch- Berkeley architect. <laughs> okay, yeah. Right. These are really crucial. Yeah. crucial things, and, and the, we're, everybody's ready for it. I mean, cr- across the political spectrum, we're dying of isolation. We're dying of loneliness. We know from studies in ad- addiction and mental health that all of that stuff thrives in isolation. It thrives. Yeah. So now we have a whole, you know, a whole uh, medical system that thrives on people getting sick and providing you know, pharmaceuticals. And so it's, you know, if you want to do a deep dive into it, there's a lot there. The important thing is that we have some models that are not just emerging; that have emerged. That, especially in the co-living model, because that's that's one where, for instance, partners and in, in, of mine and I have started a nonprofit initiative through Housing Consortium of the East Bay to provide a co-living model-based model for affordable housing for young adults. Our mission is to create high-quality. Life for young adults at a price point which a minimum wage job will offer them. So, with some savings and living in the Bay Area and in the Bay Area in Berkeley. Share with us. This is in outstanding. Palo Alto. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so what we do is well, maybe more East Palo Alto than Palo Alto, but we we're really in it. It's really in its infancy. But we have. I'll just give you some specifics. Sure. We we have a piece of land in Richmond. In downtown Richmond, which is, you know, it's not downtown Palo Alto. But we have a piece of land which fits our pod size. Remember we talked about mm-hmm. about 12 bedrooms? So I can get 15 bedrooms on each floor. This is a 5,600-square-foot lot. By the way, architects and people, dreamers, think about a 5,600-square-foot lot somewhere in Oakland or Richmond. That's not the lot that the big boys are going to be no, interested no. in. It's too small. Yeah. But it's perfect for collaborative living, co-living. Because it's the size, the footprint of that piece of land, per- gives you about fourteen co-living bedroom suites, perfect size for a pod. Four floors times you know residential times fifteen is what sixty <clears throat> bedrooms. Sixty on fifty-seven hundred square feet. And then you put twenty percent into couples living there, and you're talking about seventy-five human beings living affordably on a tiny lot that nobody wants. So very dynamic, very, very dynamic. Now up to date, the co-living, the people doing co-living has not looked at affordable housing. So that's one of the things I'm particularly doing personally, taking initiative. I've reached out to and found the the affordable housing partner, shared the co-living idea with them and they went, wow, ding, 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 ding. (laughs) That is the way we're going to do it. Instead yeah. of every young adult having their own apartment, every young adult gets their own safe bedroom, bathroom, and then with some programmatic help, depending on their level of where they are in program, they learn to live together and cook together and shop together and meals together. Now they get training and help and support and all that, but it's, you know they learn social skills. I mean, there's so much going on. Then they learn to bond with each other. And by the way, we know this, when we're bonding with each other, and we're supporting each other. When one of us fails, what happens in a co-living system when one of us gets, you know, gets a disease? The rest of us... Pick it up. Pick it up. Yeah. And support and p- each other. Now you don't have to go to a senior living facility. So, uh, by the way, uh, for yeah. your seniors out there uh, who are interested in collaborative living, senior co-housing is something I'm, I'm working on right now with the co- co-housing. So feel free, with the co-housing company, feel free to email me if you have interest in that. Yeah. Senior co-housing.
1: This is, this is amazing. So this is all going back to the... Here, let's touch on this first. You mentioned affordable housing. Can, um, at least in my opinion, that ever be adjusted to be called something like cohabitating or co- something other than affordable? So yes. it's like, instead of, I don't want to live uh, this way or that way, I want to live, you know, with people.
3: No, yeah, that's a... That's, so you actually change
1: the branding. Yeah. I mean, it's a branding. No, it needs to be changed. Okay. That's a great point. Uh
3: we're blending a collaborative living model with just the mission of being affordable, but we won't call it affordable housing. We'll call it okay. co-living, co-living for young adults, co-living for co-living young ad- adults, yeah. community living. We have a, uh, community living, living for, for, for young, young adults. adults.
1: Yeah. Oh, see, that sounds like, where do you go? To get, uh, yeah, yeah, who who you're wouldn't ready. want that? Yeah. It, it's almost like yeah. it, um, in some ways it actually kind of takes over the traditional way of doing it.
3: Oh, it does. It's, this is not the, the conventional way of manufacturing sick people, which our conventional real estate industry does. Manufacturers isolated people. Isolated, and those people are getting sick. We know that. Yeah. We, we know I mean, all the social scientists, you know, well, most of them are going to agree with this. The literature's out there. The research is out there. We know when we're isolated, and then we're stressed out. That's the other thing. It's the loneliness and the stress. And those two synergize with each other. They love each other. Stress, and loneliness, <laughs> they and loneliness love and stress, each other. right? And you come into collaborative living. The stress goes down. The loneliness is eliminated. And then you're in a virtuous cycle. Now you're building social capital. You're you're getting to know people. I get sick. You help. You get sick. I help. There's a buzzword for that. It's called resilience. Community resilience. The conventional real estate model destroys resilience. It creates dependency it does not build community resilience you know and shame on these people like Avalon and Leonard for branding themselves as community builders they are not they are building isolated boxes that cost too much to live in and are too stressful to live in and isolating each other and they're charging the maximum they can get out of it they're not interested in building community, yeah. So your your uh, your belief is. I'm sorry. Did you have a Leonard executive on? It Doesn't matter what we have. You're 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 our
1: guest, and you're right. enti- you're entitled to your experience and yes. opinion. We want to hear that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that manufactured... Did you did you discover that that they're manufacturing?
3: I just the loneliness. I literally made it up right now. Oh, really? I just thought about it. I thought, that's what they're doing. Okay. Yeah. So. Right here today. I'm using my brain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, manufacturing. Thinking about it. There's a lot of coined phrases
3: since we've been. uh, Oh, I'm so glad. A lot of coined phrases. Yeah, we want to, right? Yeah. That's the way it should be. It makes it understand. I do want to say that, you know, I have all these wonderful things that I do. uh, We also do. Yeah, uh, sure. Please. We also do very small projects. We do remodels and things. And we practice a discipline called passive house. Okay. Design Share with us a bit for our Passive House one. Design uses some very simple ideas. Ultra insulation, like serious insulation, it uses, um, you know, continuous insulation. And you can find out more about that, but, you know, from emailing me or looking at our website. So I, won't, I don't want to get too much into the specifics. But the end result is that our buildings use next to no energy to condition, like really next to next to no energy. We can do houses now that can be heated with candles. And, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very... Oh, and the other important part is you use a, a thing called heat recovery ventilation or energy okay. recovery ventilation. So those combining those, those things and what the energy recovery ventilation does is it's, it, it brings in fresh air without losing the heat or the coolth. C-O-O L-T-H. Yeah. So yes. in the summer, you want to keep the coolth in. But you need fresh air. So the heat recovery ventilator or the energy recovery ventilator does that. So moving thermal, moving energy is inexpensive. Creating energy is expensive. So these passive systems and these low energy things like heat recovery, they move energy. they They don't try to create it. An air conditioner creates cold. A typical heater, conventional heater creates heat. What the passive systems or the or the the much more efficient systems move heat and cold, and they use different techniques and passive, much lower energy techniques. So we, you know, so remember as a kid I was picking up trash. Yeah, so <laughs> I was. You still do. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And taking care of the environment. So I'm extremely internally motivated to find out about these things, and we apply them to our projects. Now. Here's the other takeaway I want people to know, everybody, uh, including the architects, is that we do not believe and from experience have shown that we can achieve a, the highest level of energy savings and sustainable designs, the application of sustainable strategies, materials, and systems methods at no or less cost than conventional. That's really, oh. really crucial. But I'll give you a simple example that we're right over in Milpitas. I'm working with a condo association that has all kinds of problems from from a 60-year-old building that was built inexpensively and using conventional, a.k.a. bad ideas. And the developer, or not developer, the builder hired us, and the builder did what he always does and brought in consultants and people to look at solving some of the problems. I'll give you one example that the buildings the the rainwater comes off, goes down a downspout and sort of sits around the buildings because they don't drain well. They don't have what we call positive drainage. And that's when the water moves away from the building, they have what called negative drainage, where the, the land is sort of tipped towards the building and it ponds up. So they brought in a standard conventional you know, landscape contractor and they gave him a bid for to put all of those there's a hundred and something buildings, so there's times four, there's four hundred or something downspouts. And To put all of those downspouts into a pipe and route it to some area that they said, we'll have to find it on site somewhere, right? So I looked at this bid, $600,000. And I said, well, I can do that for using passive means by just doing some grading, just grade, let the water flow away from the building. And they also wanted to remove the lawn because the lawn is, they're spending somewhere about $300,000 a year on a water bill. This is a low-income condo project. So we're going to remove the lawn. So we're doing all these low-tech, sort of passive, smart, passive ways of handling problems. So instead of using a bulldover to remove all this lawn, we're going to use a technique that's called sheet mulching. Basically, you put cardboard down on top of the lawn, then put rocks on the cardboard, the cardboard then drowns and burns up the existing lawn, even the seeds. And then in three years when the cardboard is composted, then you can also poke holes in the cardboard and put plants in. So you don't have to dig up the lawn. The lawn is basically composting in place. It's called sheet mulching. And it was a brilliant creation of the people in the permaculture ecological design movement. So I was telling I'm telling my client, the builder, we could probably save two hundred grand on this Simple ecological method, and I was like, you know. And I thought, and I said to him, you know, all this hippie crap that I learned, that <laughs> doing <laughs> ecological stuff. Yeah. This is saving lots of money. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the uh, I did our firm did the first uh, lead gold hotel in the world, and it's up in uh, American Canyon, and we also did the first silver lead silver hotel in the world, and it, that is up in Shasta County, up in Anderson, California. The Anderson Hotel was the first project where I realized the power of ecological design and thinking in terms of the financial, the return on investment. Okay, there you go, yeah. The financial power. Because I was always looking away, because I, I don't care about spending their money. You know, if it's saving the earth, I would spend as much money as I can. But they do. So I had to figure out ways to get the stuff that I wanted to see in it and without, you know, that they could afford Then I know it's duplicatable. So I wanted to do what the great uh, designers for Village Homes did up in Davis, which was cut holes in the curbs and the parking lots and let the stormwater drain not into a stormwater drain inlet, but out into a little winter pond, what they call little winter ponds or collection ponds. Then the stormwater can percolate into the ground, and that's actually how the earth stores water. (sighs) And then the trees, so if you go to village homes, you see these massive trees. Because instead of all the the street water and the the roof water going into a storm drain system and then out to the rivers and out to the bay, bypassing the earth, it's able to regenerate the groundwater. So we did that. And I just took initiative. I called a hydrologist and I said, this is my vision for doing this. And so lo and behold, I didn't know this at the time. The contractor says, "I said so." Here's basically the idea, and the contractor comes back and says, "Get you're not going to believe this. This is saving two hundred and fifty thousand dollars." <laughs> I was just wow. so happy, right? So we've created this thing that's reenergizes the groundwater table. We know scientifically that we're going to be feeding our trees. We're actually then keeping the water on site, which now, by the way, C three law, California law, yeah. requires. But back then, it, yeah, yeah. it did not require that. We saved 100000 of that was just in the fees the city was going to charge us to hook up to the storm sewer. We have no water leaving the site. None. No. None? None. This was back in early 2000s, before C3. And nobody was doing that. As far as I was concerned, other than Village Homes, this was the f- first project. So that I would say this is the second project in California to do this. So it was such an inspiring thing. And so that, and the Milpita story is sort of the current version of study ecology, learn, you know, motivate yourself, take initiative to learn, 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 take permaculture classes, read books on this, read books on rainwater harvesting and earth care, know what soils are, know what this, what this earth is literally made of, know about sun and wind and soil and geology, that will inform your best practices. That also, by the way, make your buildings much more beautiful. Yeah. And amazingly, you will show your clients how to save money oh. by going green.
1: That's so. excellent. This is the modern architect, KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM everyone deserves equal
2: access to housing discrimination in housing based on your race national origin disability age marital status sexual orientation or because you have children is illegal to report housing discrimination call echo housing that's E C H O. housing fair housing counselors will inform you of your rights and help you take action echo housing has offices throughout the east bay and in palo alto To get help or donate, call 1-855-ASK-ECHO toll-free. That would be A-S-K-E-C-H-O.
1: We're talking today with Todd Jersey. Todd Jersey Architecture is one of the nation's leading sustainable design firms, and you can find out more information at www.toddjerseyarchitecture.com. That's www.toddjerseyarchitecture.com. Dot com. Todd, how much do you feel this curiosity play in not just your practice, but just in, uh, you know, your personal growth?
3: Another great question, Tom. Because as I look deeper into the idea of initiative, and my staff is all going to laugh when they listen to this because they okay. keep preaching this. <laughs> curiosity is actually the source of initiative. First, you have to be curious. So curiosity is something that, unfortunately, you know, our factory model of education sort of drills out of us. So, you know, we have to stay in this box and, and we have to, you know, learn all this, memorize all this stuff to pass tests. And we have to, unfortunately, we're manufacturing, you know, more loneliness. loneliness. Yeah. And you know, we're manufacturing lonely, stressed out kids and that have lost their curiosity. And if you lose your curiosity, then lots of stuff drops off with it, including a quest, for, an imaginative quest, ability to envision things, and then if you don't have that, then it's going to be hard to take initiative on anything. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sure. You're not really thinking of anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. What's your take on this? I've asked you several times and several occasionally, actually, if there's more importance or value or curiosity for discovery or creativity, which one there's no, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. I'm just curious as to what your take is on creativity yeah. or discovery. Which one do you think that you, uh, you kind of a, a value more, if even one more. Discovery.
3: Really? Yeah, I don't think, even think about creativity.
1: Awesome. Share not even, It's right not now.
3: even a word I would even, I hardly ever use.
1: I love it. Share why.
3: Because I don't think it's, it's, it's overrated. What does that mean? I can tell you what discovery means. It's like, you know, turning a rock over and looking what's their observation. I can tell you what that is. Yeah. I can tell you what curiosity is. I can tell you what initiative is, but I cannot tell you what creativity is. Yeah. What the, What does that mean? It's just it's meaningless to me. It's not where I, it's not where I dwell. I don't dwell in a lot of areas most, most architects, frankly, dwell in. I do remember going to my first architecture office, my first job, and thinking this is the most uncreative place I've ever been. <laughs> oh, wow. that's incredible. Yeah. yeah, that was amazing. It was really, really depressing. I thought, boy, they're so formulaic, and I'm trying to come up with these. As you can see, I'm sort of a barn, a little bit of a barn burner personality. <laughs> and I thought, boy, they're trying to squelch me. You know, I yeah. was sort of taking it personally, but I wasn't, it wasn't really personal. It was just I wanted, I wanted to have more fun, you know. But I'll give you an example. And, you know, students out there, this is another, I, th- I think, an important lesson is to be bold. Be bold with your peers. Be bold with your, with your bosses. Don't be afraid. I remember I was designing, uh, I was part of a team early on in my, in my first year right out of graduate school. I was part of a team designing the school. So this wonderful firm in um, Cambridge, Mass., and I would look at, it. I was supposed to design the auditorium, which I was happy to design the auditorium, but then I'd look at the rest of the design and it didn't fit. <laughs> it wasn't very good. So I would go home on my own hours and design the whole school. <laughs> Did you leave? So what's that an example of, Tom? Yeah. Oh, initiative again. Thank you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yeah. So I took initiative. Yeah. And, and then I came. I remember sheepishly coming into my boss's office and say, you know, you didn't, you didn't ask me to do this. You didn't, you're not paying me to do this. But here it is. Here's what I think we should do. And he comes back two days later and say, that's what we're going to do. So it was just a better, it was a better, really pissed off, of course, people. I don't blame them for being pissed off. I never held a, you shouldn't be mad. (laughs) I would be mad. But what am I going to do, not be creative? So, you know. Yeah. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. You should have been doing this. I mean, it's not my fault that you didn't do what I'm doing. And so they gave me the job to do. And then they put me on another project, which, because, it wasn't working. the team the, the team bas- they basically fired me from the job. They took the design <laughs> and then put me over in this other project. and it was to design to do a sort of proposal to a school district for adding a bunch of stuff. And I worked with m- one of my favorite mentors, a uh, Steve Friedlander, and he sort of had some ideas and scribbled some things and I turned it into this really it was a additions to this existing building. A component of the existing building was this 1930s WPA, beautiful brick, colonial, just think Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. And then in the 60s, they put this ring of really ugly two-story metal buildings. So to expand it, I created these other sort of colonial-looking things and <laughs> created this little village and made a clay, plastilina clay model out of it, which they presented to the town. I what, what the sequence of events. I think they presented, no, no, the, one of the, not my direct boss, but one of the principals of the company looks at the, my clay model and goes, we don't do clay. <laughs> and so I went and told my boss, John just told me we're not <laughs> doing clay. What the hell with John? So they presented this clay model. The township voted unanimously a million-dollar design. This is in the late 80s, a million-dollar design fee. Steve comes back to me the next day and goes, dude, we got the money. You got the job. Oh, well, one year out of graduate school, I, I was in charge of a hundred and fifty thousand square foot public school. I was so happy, <laughs> <Bad>. <laughs> you know, and you know, so I had taken this initiative. No, nobody else in the firm was doing the clay, but it, to me, it was a no brainer. It was so, so, such a, oh. a, a wonderful medium. We were, we were using it yeah. in college. Why couldn't we use it professionally, <laughs> right? So, and then another thing that happened was after I had designed it and we had gone through design review, and it was. Actually, we were moving into construction drawings. They they, ha- they still had me as the chief designer, but then they pulled in a project manager. And the project manager sat down with me, it, just like Tom and I are here in this, in this room, and the project manager looked at me and said, Todd, it's time for you to get off your high horse. No way. Yeah, that's what he said. I was like, high horse. I said, Chuck, yeah. I have no intention of getting off my high horse. <laughs> No intention. Yeah. Well, I knew I, I knew I had produced great yeah. results for the firm. Yeah. And I said you could come on with me. Yeah. But that was wrong. a really a wonderful moment in my life. You ought to keep it. And I, can, <laughs> I can see it resonates. Isn't it the great? Series. Yeah, it is. It's like such a. I don't know how I came up with that. You know, it's like I have no intention, and come on up with me. Yeah. And you know what? He's nothing. Oh. <laughs> Such a dork. That's, that's, <laughs> that's beautiful. But isn't that great? But so yeah. you know, it's a, it's on our website. It's called Nosset Regional Middle School. It's in Orleans. It won national awards for integrating existing buildings with new buildings. The kids love it. When I went and visited a, year, a couple of years later, I remember one kid. I'm taking pictures and kids going, Ah, you like our beautiful school? Oh. That's one of the best moments of my career. That's great. You know, just so so neat.
1: Yeah. Todd, it's been wonderful having you. Thank you very much. I hope you consider coming back again. Of course I would. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom DiOro. Our guest today has been Todd Jersey. Todd Jersey Architecture is one of the nation's leading sustainable design firms, and the the staff has been leaders in the field of earth-friendly design since uh, 1989. Their mission is to create projects and optimally support human needs while protecting and enhancing the earth's ecological systems. The firm has won multiple awards in a quarter of a century of practice. They've completed over 300, 300 exemplary projects. For more information, feel free to visit www.toddjerseyarchitecture.com. That's www.toddjerseyarchitecture.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives.
2: Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California and on location in California and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence and assisted by Akshay Hyagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu, Stanford, dot, dot, Stanford, dot, edu, and again that's Interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu.